It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a machine, listen to yourself, the world, but it don't need something to your own head. Beat it up and I've seen that no seats. The ladder from the platter with the fear fight down. Like fire in a fire, with the system of the gang, the government for hiring the combat site. But it wasn't coming in a hurry, but you're getting it down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the hour of doom. And Bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, a scintilla of serenity <laughs> in a scurrilous world. Aha. <laughs> uh-huh. I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find 850, more than that actually, post videos and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. And I'm Amy Alton. I haven't had enough coffee this morning, and I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And the hostess with the mostest, <laughs> caffeinated or decaffeinated. Decaffeinated. Or either way. Our mission is to put a medically prepared person in every family for any disaster. And we are, make no mistake, the watchers on the wall. We watch it all for you to help you keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident? With an unharmonious hamster? I'll bet you have. Our attorney says, don't call me, call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. And listen to this. Help me, I haven't had enough coffee. Oh, wait, no, that's not what I'm supposed to say. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. But whenever and wherever <laughs> it is not available, That's true. <laughs> you better have a good idea of what to do if you come across somebody sick or injured in times of trouble. And you know what? And that's exactly point. what we're here to help you with. What's the gist, physicist? We learn as much from you as you do from us. So connect with us. It's easy. And here's the lovely Nurse Amy to tell you how. Well, if you send me a cup of coffee, I'll answer your emails. Hey, send beans. <laughs> send <laughs> no, coffee not beans. the coffee itself. <laughs> It's okay. If they put it in a mason jar and can it, they can send it to me. Okay. <laughs> anyway, you can contact us by email at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Find us on Facebook at our group Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones, and Nurse Amy. We have a couple of Facebook pages you can like and become friends with, Doom and Bloom and Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy Show. 
you also have a personal page. That's right, which, Joe Alden. Which we put all the posts on first and then disseminate them, and that is Joe Alden, MD. Absolutely. You can follow us on Twitter, at Prepper Show. And don't forget our YouTube channel, at DR Bones Nurse Amy. We have another podcast all about current events, a lot of politics there. And gosh knows, politics are... All over the news. Mm-hmm. Can't get away from them, actually. That's right. What's um, our show called? American uh-huh. Survival Radio. There you go. You'll find that in, co- in collaboration with Genesis Communications Network. Absolutely. And I just wanted to mention one thing. I added a section on our website called Books. And what it is for now is exactly the list in the back of both of our books, the, the second and the handbook. second and the third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, are resources, and it's the physical resources that we suggest you get from the book that we wrote. And I've given you links so you can find them easily, or at least look and see if there's anything that that's interesting to you or something you're missing. So we have a little resource section for books. Well, that makes a lot of sense because you can't know everything, and sure enough, the Internet might go out. And so you want to have a print copy of a lot of these options, a lot of these books that Amy has put together as her recommendations, as our recommendations in our book. And this is, I think, an awesome way to have a complete set of information Medical information. Just in case there's no Google. At your fingertips. That's right. You never know. That's right. Hey, you know what? One thing we haven't mentioned is that we're going to have a live video cast next week on yes, Wednesday, Wednesday uh, uh, in collaboration with the nice folks at AroundTheCabin.com. And also wanted to mention, you mentioned our books. So do me a favor out there and make an old man very happy. Aww. That's me. And get a copy of our brand spanking new third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, The Essential Guide for When Medical Help is Not on the Way. It is now available on Amazon and on our website at doomandbloom.net. And we also have a book on Zika virus and other pandemic diseases. It's not just about Zika virus. It is called The Zika Virus Handbook, though. And these are things that you should know something about. And believe me, you'll be glad you did. Hey, are you ready for a hurricane? Well, we certainly hope the folks in the Florida Panhandle are because they're getting it right now, as a matter of fact. And certainly hurricanes can be severe, but they don't have to be life-threatening for those who are prepared. We talk about this all the time. You know, tornadoes pop up suddenly, but hurricanes are first identified when they are hundreds, maybe thousands of miles away. We can watch their development. We can have a good idea of how bad it's going to get, how much time we have to get ready. And an effective plan of action takes into account things like shelter, clean water, food, power, and a lot of other important issues. If you can plan before a hurricane threatens your area, you'll avoid that mad rush for supplies that leaves supermarket shelves completely empty. Now, you can outrun some of these storms if you get enough of a head start, and that's actually one of your most important decisions. Should you get out of Dodge? In other words, if you live on the coast or you live in an area where floods occur often, there are going to be rising tidewaters. We call this the storm surge that might be reason enough to leave. The storm surge is combined with heavy rains oftentimes when when hurricanes occur, and it can cause pretty impressive flooding. We talked about flooding just a little while ago in in one of our previous shows, 
And all of this flooding and storm surge, these are the leading causes of deaths due to hurricanes. Now, the National Weather Service keeps a close eye on hurricanes. They issues two types of warnings. One, a hurricane watch, in which hurricane conditions, when I say hurricane conditions, sustained winds of at least 74 miles an hour or greater, are possible within a specific area. So a watch, hurricane conditions possible, right. warning, hurricane warnings, hurricane conditions are expect are expected somewhere within a specified area. And so a hurricane warning is, hey man, it's a coming, so you better be ready for it. If, in many cases, as a matter of fact, the authorities will issue an order to evacuate areas that are going to be hardest hit. And if such an order is broadcast, get out of Dodge. Hit the road, Jack. You got to go. If you live in prefabricated housing, especially things like trailers, or if you live really near the coast, it's really a good idea to hit the road well before the storm makes landfall. Absolutely. And I think a lot of people understand when they're a little more susceptible to flooding than, say, someone a couple blocks away. It just depends on how high your house was built because most of the houses in Florida had some fill that was brought in from the western area into the eastern area to build up the houses so we weren't all at just sea level. Right. <laughs> so Good idea. There are certain areas, like in Hollywood, that tend to flood a little more than the more western areas that as time went on and as they built further and further west, they would put the houses up a little bit higher as you went further west. And that makes sense because the storm surge could go miles inland. So Absolutely. That is, that's definitely an issue. So even if you're not issued a get-out-of-dodge order now, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and you know that your house, because of just where the block that you live in or your street, tends to have more flooding than others around you, go ahead and get out. Yes. You know, don't, don't just rely on... The people who are in charge of the city or the county to tell you or the state to tell you to get out, use your own good sense and uh, good judgment. Now, if you don't can't afford to leave town or you can't afford ho- hotel accommodations, things like that, many municipalities in hurricane-prone areas will have designated public buildings, oh, yeah. solid, sturdy <clears throat> foundations, Places that you can go to in times of trouble, now, they'll designate them in, in your community. Now, you have to remember when you go there, they're not going to guarantee electricity. They're not going to guarantee that there's a food court. They're no. not, they're not going to guarantee um, pillow-topped mattresses. Right. You're lucky if they guarantee a cot. Or, or, <laughs> or a separation in any way, shape, or form from anyone else around you. So they're just going to give you a little square footage, and you're going to have to bring everything else. So think about that when you go to these places that, you know, you need to bring a few gallons of water. You should bring that tuna fish and crackers and some peanut butter and jelly, even if you have to eat that on the crackers. No Mm. big deal. Crackers will last longer. No, and crackers will last last longer longer. than bread, by the way. That's why I'm saying crackers. Uh, Bring some comfortable sleeping. If you have an air mattress, you know, a a king size can fit, you know, a few people on it. If you guys don't move around too much and you kind of huddle up, Uh, bring some bedding and pillows, um, things to do. 
think of having to sit there in this building, possibly without lighting, which means you should bring some lanterns and flashlights, nothing gas, strictly uh, battery or having had it charged with solar will work fine. Mm -hmm. Uh, But bring some entertainment. Bring some books. uh, Bring some games to play that aren't loud and annoying to other people, but, you know, board games. Things that people aren't screaming and yelling, but, you know, they're having fun and entertaining <laughs> quietly amongst yourselves. So you got to think of your boredom because you aren't going to have a television most likely. And who knows what your radio reception will be in this nice, solid, thick building. Now, the important thing to know <clears throat> is that if you do choose to leave town, go as far inland as you possibly can. Hurricanes get their strength from the warm water temperatures over the tropical ocean, and they'll lose strength quickly as they travel over land. So it might be a good move to make reservations at a hotel if you are going to leave, and because there's going to be little room at the end for those people that are latecomers. So a good idea is to have a go bag, such as what Amy has just talked about, ready for any emergency. And a lot of people do pack for about 72 hours off the grid in case of a disaster. But that number is pretty arbitrary. I think it's actually not long enough or not enough materials to last for at least a week's supply of food, let's say, and water. I think that would make the most sense. I I totally agree. You never know how long it's going to take for these things to come back or for your house to be inhabitable Exactly, exactly. And also, by the way, don't forget to have that medical kit. There are people that could get injured, and you may need to help them. Absolutely. A shameless plug here. You can buy some great kits designed by yours truly, Nurse Amy, Amy Alton, at store.doomandbloom.net. That's right. Awesome medical kits there. Designed by a real pro. That's all I Thank have. Thank you. Oh, say. and I pack everything in waterproof bags. That's right. That's right. Well, you know what? If we're going to talk about your home and you're going to consider staying in your home and riding out the storm, you should have an idea of what your home's weak spots are. Good idea. In other words, you know what amount of sustained wind that your structure can withstand. Now, most homes are built to withstand about 90-mile-an-hour winds. That's a lot. But when South Florida was devastated by Hurricane Andrew in 1992, new homes in South Florida were mandated to be able to withstand 125-mile-an-hour winds. If the coming storm had sustained winds over 125 miles an hour, you may still not be able to depend on the structural integrity of your home. If you decide to weather the storm out at home, there should always be a safe room somewhere in the interior of the house. It should be in a part of the home that's most downwind from the direction that the hurricane is hitting you. And be certain to plan for special needs. There are a lot of family members, pets may have special needs, special food that they need, medicines they need to take with them. You might wind up taking care of more people than you expect. And if that's the case, have more water and non-perishable food than you think you'll need a gallon a day per person minimum. Filling bathtubs with fresh water, that might give you a reasonable supply. Outdoors, I want you to have unsecured objects chained to outside walls or brought inside because they can become missiles in a hurricane. So that means patio furniture, potted plants, things like that. If you've got hurricane shutters, put them up. Make sure you have some tarps available. Roof shingles are oftentimes casualties in the storm, so it's going to be important to have those available. Indoors, turn your refrigerators and freezers down to their absolute coldest settings so that food won't spoil right away if the power fails. Coolers filled with ice, or dry ice even, that'll extend the life of some of the more perishable items 
but you need a can opener. <laughs> you need a hand-operated can opener in case the power is out. Speaking of out, communications can be out in a major storm, so make sure you have a NOAA weather radio and lots of fresh batteries. You should always have your gas and propane tanks filled up throughout the hurricane season. Make sure you know how to shut off electricity, gas, and water, and consider getting a generator. If you have a generator, you would have some power. The problem is that deadly fumes can occur if you use them inside. Never, ever use these items inside a home. And there's one other kind of power you should be concerned about. Purchasing power in the aftermath of a storm. Credit card verification could be down, so you need some cash. Now, what about the kids? If you've hunkered down in your home during the storm, you've got to make sure that you've got stuff for the kids to do. Kids, and I have to say, most adults will go stir-crazy when they're stuck inside, especially if they don't have TVs or computers in service. So make sure you take time to discuss the coming storm in advance with the whole family. This will give people an idea of what to expect, help them prepare, keep fear down to a minimum. Always give kids some responsibility as well, I think. you got to give them the opportunity to maybe pack up their own bag, select games to play. That'll keep their minds busy and their nerves calm. People are enthralled with hurricanes. They're going to go out in dangerous winds. They'll take selfies. They'll do other silly, foolish things. And this is a recipe for a very, very bad outcome. And some avoidable deaths will occur as a result. I've seen it in Sandy. I've seen it in just about every major hurricane. Now, some items are going to be useful. After the storm, you're going to make sure that you have things like work gloves, plastic garbage cans, duct tape, insect repellent, even tweezers to deal with splinters that are going to be part and parcel of moving a lot of debris and wood and stuff like that. You might even benefit from having a chainsaw in if case there are trees that fall. Now, one thing you need to know about the aftermath of a hurricane, oftentimes there are so many people trying to get on the phone that cell phone service is going to be down due to either damage to the lines or or towers, or due to the large number of calls. Usually, these companies can only handle about 20% of their total possible call volume at any one time. If there's more of a volume than that, then it's very possible you're not going to get through. Maybe towers are damaged. Maybe other issues are occurring. So that's something that you... Oh, you could consider texting, believe it or not, Texts seem to be able to go through many times when voice calls don't, so that's something to give a shot. By planning early to get your home and family ready for a hurricane, you know what? You're going to get through that storm in the best shape possible. Make sure you are prepared. Hey, you know, we're going to be traveling over the next couple of weeks, and Nurse Amy is going to tell you where you can come by and say hi. Absolutely. Uh, We will be next weekend, which is September 9th and 10th, 2016, folks. (laughs) <laughs> I know you might be listening to this in the future, but this is... In two- the future, <laughs> in the far, far Yes, future. 2016, September 9th and 10th, we will be in Lakeland, Florida at the Self-Reliance Expo. And that will have a suture class between 2 and 5 p.m. on Friday the 9th. Saturday, we're just going to be in the booth, so come by and say hi. I believe the expo starts on Friday at 12 noon. So you'll have a couple hours before we get started with the suture class again to come say hello. The following weekend, we're going to be in the beautiful St. Louis, Missouri, area, uh-huh. which I heard had 
uh, some tremors of an earthquake yesterday. As a matter of fact. (laughs) I have to tell you folks, I've experienced hurricanes and floods and tornadoes. I have not experienced an earthquake. I would rather not experience an earthquake. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty scary. Yeah. So that show is September 17th and 18th, again, 2016. We'll be in the booth all day on Saturday the 17th. In fact, uh, Joe, Dr. Bones, will be speaking, I believe, at 12 noon on that day. Great lecture. Don't miss it if you guys live in the area. Yeah, what's the matter with you? (laughs) On the 18th, which is the Sunday, we will be doing a sutra class at 930. That lasts about three hours. Depends on how many students we have. Of course, if we have spots open and you happen to visit on Saturday, we're happy to sign you up then. Uh, The class does usually get filled up pretty quickly, so try to sign up now or come out early. In fact, if you would like to sign up, I have a tab on the website, doomandbloom.net, called Classes. So go ahead and click on that. And even if you don't want to sign up for a suture class, you can find out where we're going to be and come visit us. Absolutely. You know, I'm glad you mentioned the earthquake. We actually talked all about earthquakes in the last Survival Medicine Hour, so don't forget to check that out so you know a little bit more about earthquake safety. But indeed, the new Madrid fault is acting up. There were a lot of uh, little aftershocks. It's fussing. And and it was like a (laughs) 6.1 or something like that. I think a 6.2, 6.2 magnitude. Sometimes they do adjust it, Earthquake. They felt it as far away as Arizona, I understand. So it is uh, a little bit scary. They do believe they're overdue for a pretty significant quake in that area. If if you could just hold out... (laughs) For well, another hundred years, we would be at, very at least happy. Hundred to, you. you know what? Couple How about a thousand? Years. Thousand <laughs> years sounds great. There you go. Just delay, delay, delay the earthquake. Well, let's see. In the news, more bad news for bees. We talked about bees a oh. while ago. You may or may not be an environmentalist, but you know you should support the hardworking honeybee. Every third bite of food that you eat is there because it was pollinated by bees. And honey, of course, when it's raw and unprocessed, it's a pretty darn good product, not just tasty, but you medics out there could use it in times of trouble as a wound covering for burns, other injuries, has an antibiotic effect. It's a pretty <clears throat> awesome thing to have. But Absolutely. bees, lately bees, Amy, have been in big, big trouble. In the last decades, bee colonies are experiencing die-offs of major percentages of all the colonies in various areas, And beekeepers now have a thriving business trucking hives to farming areas that don't have enough of the pollinators. Speaking of which, a truck overturned in Mount Julia, Tennessee, carrying 430 hives for just that exact purpose. According to the American Beekeeping Foundation, each hive can carry up to about 60,000 bees each. That is a lot of bees. Uh, And they're making, or they made efforts to try to save the bees, but... Many hives were just plain destroyed. It is a, a terrible shame. It is awful. It is. I mean, those poor things have been through enough already. Absolutely. This is just like a nail in the coffin. And I, I hope folks realize how much of our food exists because of bees. Right. They say a third of every bite of food, after every third bite we take. Oh. It's amazing. Now, Our growing concerns about Zika, West Nile, other mosquito-borne viruses have led to the institution of mosquito control programs in a lot of towns and cities in the U.S. 
And one effective means of eliminating adult mosquitoes is aerial spraying with a certain organophosphate pesticide called NALED, N-A-L-E-D. And unfortunately, it is causing collateral damage to a lot of beneficial insects, and the honeybee is one of them. That's another nail in the coffin. A recent series of aerial sprayings in Dorchester County, South Carolina, has killed millions of bees. NALED is used because it's relatively short-acting. However, it is lethal to bees, and if you spray it during the daytime, it decimates the population of these important pollinators. The chemical is not meant to be used between sunrise and sunset when the bees are out foraging. And so Dorchester County's inappropriate timing of its spraying has had the effect of nuking the colonies of many beekeepers in the county. Dead worker bees were found in large clumps at hive entrances, and one beekeeper lost all 46 hives. It is really just terrible. The county claims to have given advisories of the spraying via email, but many local beekeepers say they didn't receive the notice. Mosquito control is usually conducted by trucks over there, but they decided to do aerial sprayings given the Zika concern. Right. And it came as a very bad surprise to a lot of the bee farm owners. One was actually quoted as saying, when they sprayed by trucks, they tell me in advance, we talk about it so I can protect my bees, but no one told me about the aerial spraying. Nobody told me at all. Right, and I think the problem was that they have a list of uh, beekeepers and but some of them are not on that particular list so they didn't get notified for the aerial spraying that's the problem I know with it but they're with, they've <clears throat> corrected that the uh, the county feels really bad by the way folks oh yeah they apologize to the beekeepers I, not like they're saying ha 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 we yeah. killed your bees well I mean you know some people do perceive government um, personnel as being you know less than um, sympathetic for a lot of things that they do, but the, I, yes, I really like me sometimes. <laughs> I really believe that this this county felt really really bad about it, and they're going to have a better relationship with the small beekeepers. I, I think they notified the bigger ones. It was the small, be like mom and pop that right. had a, you know those a, under a like few. five foot four. The small beekeepers. <laughs> All right. With <laughs> it is a shame though. With warning, the beekeepers could have shielded their hives. I and, know, and the bees or the timing. The timing stuff. was bad too. They said if they did it at night, right? What they did, I think, was at eight a.m. The sun was up already, so the bees were out collecting yep. already. Busy, They're, busy bees. Busy bees, right? The the early bee gets the pollen. <laughs> right there, you go. Right, exactly. Well, you know that <clears throat> is. Amazing that this is a story again because I talked about it a little while ago regarding another pesticide called a neonicotinoid, otherwise known as a neonic. And I told a story uh, about an Oregon Target store where mm -hmm. everybody, when they arrived to go shopping at Target in Oregon, they parked in a parking lot and they saw like a carpet of dead bees, bumblebees in this case. And it turned out that a pest control company had sprayed pesticide on the surrounding trees because there were a lot of aphids there. Right. Or aphids, if, if you call it that. Uh, of course, bees don't read warning signs, although they were posted, and 300 colonies of bees were destroyed there. Wow. So that's a lot of lost pollinators that we're losing from all these different events. Neonicotinoids, by the way, were developed by, guess what, who? Bayer 
the guys who make Bayer aspirin a decade ago, and it differs from organophosphates like NALID in that they clear from the air a lot slower. Mm. And indeed, many crops are treated with these neonicotinoids. The, the chemical, once it's sprayed on the plant, is absorbed by the plant's vascular system, and it makes the plant entire plant poisonous to bugs that eat the leaves, nectar, and pollen. Guess who that affects? The bees. Exactly. Now, sometimes they treat the soil as well. Same absorption effect that makes it deadly to pests. And so pests are killed, but good insects are killed too. When And that's one, a, that yeah. is a big problem. That It's difficult to... You know, if you're growing food, you do get uh, aphids or aphids. You you get all kinds of, of things that are eating your food and destroying the plant, maybe from underground or um, in the leaves. And it's tough to figure out what you can use that won't hurt the bees or hurt the things that help eat the, the bad pests. So it, it's, it's not always easy. I will say that what I use is known to not be harmful to the bad bugs. I use Castile soap mixed with some peppermint or tea tree essential oils, and I add neem oil. That's N-E-E-M oil, and it's not supposed to hurt the bees. So if you want to try to, at least in your small gardens, have a more organic approach that may not hurt the bees spray with this you have to spray more frequently because it doesn't last like the chemical you were just talking about it doesn't stay around for very long especially if it rains so you have to do it more frequently you may have to do it every two or three days and if it rains you're gonna have to do it immediately again so it's more effort but you might spare some of these good uh, pests and bugs like and insects like the bees. That's exactly right. You know, there's a, a thing called colony <clears throat> collapse disorder, and they think that these pesticides are related to that. When a neonicotinoid, for example, doesn't kill the bee, uh-huh. it might damage its immune system, could possibly affect its ability to navigate. And they have some situations where bees become lost and they can't find their hives. Oh. It actually appears as if the bees have magically disappeared. So that's called colony collapse disorder. And now it's not proven to be the case that a pesticide is the cause of it, but it doesn't take a lot of imagination to implicate it as a factor, at least. Now, there's a study also that showed that these neonicotinoids, neonicotinoids, my goodness. This is i I'm going to call them, let's call them neonics. Thank you. I I was going to say, get a nickname or something. there you go. Neonics are now thought to damage sperm of drone bees, the male bees, and they kill close to 40% of their sperm, and that causes another failure disorder called queen failure. And that's when a queen bees fail to have live offspring. A queen failure is, of course, of a course. hive failure. Absolutely. That's right. There are a lot of other reasons that a hive can fail, parasites, disease, many other factors. I mean, I think that it's amazing that bees exist at all given all the stress that the, our nation's bee population is already under so what what's going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back? i don't know but we're in big trouble if we don't keep them healthy i have to say that a chemical to be banned in the united states has to be proven proven dangerous now Bayer is a german company 
It's in Bavaria. Mm -hmm. And you might be interested to know that you can't use neonics in Germany or anywhere in the European Union. Okay, so bear, bear in the facilities. We've actually driven by this, yes, we have. by the way. Yeah. In Germany, we have seen the main buildings that have bear on them. Right. So where this is being made, they don't allow it to be sprayed. Right. Too dangerous. In the U.S., however, <laughs> okay. neonics are widely used. And guess who pays the price? The bees. Now, there are some areas in the U.S. that take action uh, on this issue. Eugene, Oregon should be congratulated for forbidding the use of this pesticide. Others should follow, though. We have to encourage people to urge action by the federal government to ban these neonics and mandate wiser use of organophosphates like NALID. Mm -hmm. My goodness, our bees are an important natural resource. They're not just for beekeepers, but for farmers, for all Americans. Now, I understand that big agriculture as a chemical branch. It's a powerful political lobby. But if an entire continent like Europe can outlaw neonics, why can't we? You know, if you're a consumer, if you eat food... You should be invested in this fight. You know, you want to save the whales, of course, but it might be even more important to save the bees. Hey, you know, we're going to take a very short break. You're listening to the Survival Medicine Hour with Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy Joe and Amy Alden, and we will be right back. Hey, I'm Joe Alton, MD. I'm here to remind you that disasters can happen anytime, anywhere, and you need to know what to do in an emergency. The new 2016 third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook is the essential guide for when medical help is not on the way. The Survival Medicine Handbook covers every issue you'll face in times of trouble, and it's all in plain English. Get the Survival Medicine Handbook at Amazon.com. I guarantee one day you'll be glad you did. Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Amy Alton, ARNP of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family medical bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did. And we're back. You're listening to the Survival Medicine Hour with Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Thanks for staying with us, folks. We got some more exciting things to tell you. Oh, exciting. <laughs> well, actually, I wanted to talk about Zika virus. Oh, my gosh. For a while, oh. there was nothing but Zika virus on this show. It was all Zika all the time. And so we haven't talked about it for actually quite a while. Yes. But that not because there hasn't been a lot of news relating to Zika virus. There certainly has. And you actually were a little concerned mm -hmm. and actually got a Zika test yourself. I which did. Are, we are waiting on the results. You might be the first <laughs> Broward County, Florida case of Zika. Oh, and it my. would be certain, certainly locally transmitted. We have them in the Brazil. No, we have not been to Brazil. And you have not been to Brazil. Uh, I had the test on Friday the 2nd of September, 2016 again, folks. I don't know how long it takes. They couldn't tell me how long there it takes them to process or get back to me. But I have pink eye. I had a headache. Um, I think I had a fever the night before because I had chills all night long. And a little achy. So... Could be allergies. Who knows? There's a lot of things to explain away each and every one of those. 
But altogether, and living in Broward County and having been bitten by mosquitoes, despite using my all-natural spray and some non-natural sprays, and trying to stay indoors as much as possible, actually, um, you know, it happens. You go outside to get the mail. You go to the grocery store. I mean, you can't live in a bubble your entire life. So, anyway, we'll see. That's right. Well, most I, I still likely, have pink eye despite all my treatments, though. It, well, oh, pink eye takes a few days to go crazy. away. Sometimes it doesn't always go even, away. Like, I'm even right trying away. natural. I'm doing a, a just to let folks know. I'm doing a a honey. I take a little bit of warm water mm-hmm. and put a little bit of honey in it and dissolve it, and then I let that cool down a bit. And I make a tea out of chamomile tea, and I mix the the concentrated chamomile tea. Uh, with the watered-down honey, and I do an eye wash. Yeah. So I've been doing that a few times a day. Or you can do make a co- compress and put it on your Yeah, eye yeah. I should do the compresses in the morning because the, the discharge is a little yucky. But anyone who's had pink eye knows exactly what I'm talking about. If you haven't, try not to get it. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's Good not, advice. not fun. Good advice from a medical professional. You know what? There you have it. You have the eyes of a zombie. That's what you look like. Yeah. You have zombie eyes. They're sort of bloodshot mm. and icky looking. <laughs> <laughs> well. It, that This shall pass. <laughs> Zika virus is cont- continuing its globetrotting ways. It's hopping back to Asia of all places with Singapore and now Malaysia reporting Local cases, matter of fact, 200 cases in Singapore, uh, an epidemic really for that size country, a tiny country, essentially right. a city-state, mm-hmm. if you think about it. There's only one local case so far in neighboring Malaysia, but that was just reported yesterday. I expect more. There were reported to be two strains of this virus, and which one is the culprit in Singapore really isn't known yet. Truthfully, I say that there are probably a lot more strains than the scientists think and I think that some of these strains have mutated. I've said that many times before, and I believe that that is what's happening. What's happening here. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the International Olympic Committee claims no athlete was infected by Zika during the Olympics, which makes perfect sense as athletes weren't tested unless they had symptoms, something that only happens in 20% of normal people, not to mention Olympic athletes with pretty solid immune systems, I'll right. bet. So just saying that will... You know, just saying that this is a lot of hooey on the International Olympic Committee's part will have people say, oh, well, there's that old Dr. Bones, that fear monger. But no, that is not. ridiculous. I've always said that we need a calmed, reasoned, measured approach Absolutely. to dealing with this virus. But uh, believe me, the International Olympic Committee has a vested interest in people not getting sick. However, Singapore seems to have had well, a I, pretty big outbreak since then. I wonder if they had some Olympic athletes. Absolutely. Well, you know, the Olympic Committee cannot make that statement in good faith unless they've tested everybody. Right, and they didn't. So they can't make it because, again, just like you said, 80% of people don't have any symptoms, and those 20% who did probably were so mild. I mean, Except that I knew what the signs of Zika were, I wouldn't have gotten tested. I just wouldn't have had the test. But for me, I feel it's important. And by the way, folks, I don't, I don't need to know that I have Zika for myself. 
I want to know that I have Zika so that I can report it to the county so that they can notify any pregnant ladies who may be living in my area because I obviously got it from a mosquito. And so um, that, that other mosquito women, can exactly. Right, so I am personally trying to protect women who may be trying to get pregnant or who are pregnant in my community. That is why I had the test. I just want to be clear. It's not going to affect me. I'm not pregnant, and we're not going to have any more children. Oh, but, but my, <laughs> I think we should talk about that. <laughs> oh, honey, <laughs> we've raised enough of them. <laughs> I, think, I think our five, yeah, five contri- contributions five, yeah. to the the world five is, is enough, more right? than enough. All right. Um, but I, I, I did just want to clarify that, you know, I didn't just go get a test because, oh, gee, maybe I have Zika. No, I want to know if Zika mosquitoes are around my neighborhood so that the babies that may be born in the future or who are being made right now growing inside of somebody are protected. That is why I did it because I care about babies. That's why I became a nurse midwife. I love babies. And a fine nurse midwife you are. Ah. Well, you know, even CDC director Tom Frieden thinks it's an issue if there's an outbreak in a place like Singapore. Singapore is not a poor country in Asia, ladies and gentlemen. It is a wealthy country. It's got one of the strongest anti-infection protocols in Asia with health officials, teams of inspectors always looking out for areas of standing water that can lead to mosquito-borne illnesses. Matter of fact, he said... Anytime there's a disease outbreak in Singapore, it tells us how difficult that disease is to control. So, wow. Mosquito-borne diseases are such a big issue in that part of the world that Singaporeans and other people, other Asians over there, refer that English-speaking Asians, that is, mm-hmm. refer to mosquitoes as not skeeters like we refer to them here. <laughs> they call them, guess what they call them? What do they call them? Mozzies. Mozzies. So they have their own pet name for mosquitoes. Mozzies, M-O-Z-Z-I-E-S. Wow. So how about that? You learned something new today. I did too. So how much should we fear Zika as opposed to, say, Ebola virus? Right? That would be the typical thing. Certainly epidemics of infectious disease seem to be more commonplace, I guess, with international travel being so easy. Before, it was folks from rich countries going to poor countries for things like, oh, I don't know, tourist trips and things like that. But now there are more folks from developing countries that are in business. Some of these countries are finally getting more developed. And now they're coming from the less developed countries to developed countries like the United States. uh, We've seen Ebola in 2014. We saw chikungunya and dengue virus in 2015. Zika and and West Nile, we've seen some of that in Mm -hmm. 2016. Mm -hmm. But... People aren't falling dead in the streets from Zika like they did with Ebola or having bleeding disorders like can happen. what can happen with dengue fever. So for most people, Zika is pretty boring as pandemics go. Oh, I just want to bring a little story into this. Speaking of that, that they're not thinking is such a big deal. The uh, lab tech that drew my blood uh-huh. was from Granada. Oh. And she said that... All of her relatives there. And she named, she said, grandparents, brothers, sisters, mother, fathers, nieces, nephews. They've all had it. 
They've all had Zika. Wow. She said they've all had Zika. Well, yeah, it is raging through I the Caribbean. Like, wow, really? That's incredible. I said, well, you know, the young folk that might have babies in the future are immune now. So, yeah, she she said they all have had it. And they, they don't have screens on the windows. And they don't use mosquito repellent. They don't use... Uh, the right. mosquito netting over the beds. I, you know, I was asking her about all of you know the precautions that people might be using there, and she says no, they're not doing any of that. Amazing. They're just getting it. Well, you know, if if you do get symptoms, you get a maybe a mild fever, a rash, some joint aches, maybe reddened eyes, a condition called conjunctivitis, <laughs> pink eye, like you have yes. a little bit of. I actually and, put a picture on Facebook on uh, oh, Tuesday ugh. of. I first got it in my right eye, and then the next day it was also in my left eye. Oh, boy. So there's a picture of pink eye on our Facebook group, mm-hmm. the group, the Survival Medicine Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy group. So if you'd like to see gross pictures, go there. It's not gross. <laughs> <laughs> it's not gross. Well, all these symptoms only occur in 20% of cases. You're actually in the minority if you do have a Zika. The grand majority of Zika victims never know they have a disease. Yeah. Uh, by the way, if you've been off the planet exploring space for the last year, <laughs> Zika virus is <laughs> a flavivirus. It's in the family, uh, the same family as yellow fever, West Nile, chikungunya, dengue, uh, yellow fever, all sorts of stuff. And it, for the most part, affects fetuses of infected mothers. The virus has been shown in the lab to kill brain and other nerve cells. It leads to a smaller brain and head than normal in the fetus. That's a condition called microcephaly. And it causes, of course, disabilities associated with having brain damage. It also causes vision, hearing deficits, deforms joints by inactivating the nerves that allow normal movements of those joints. In adults, it causes, in rare cases, a condition called Guillain-Barre syndrome, where your immune system attacks its own nerve cells, causing muscle weakness, paralysis, even respiratory arrest. That happens in other circumstances as well, but it occurs about 50 times as often in people that have had Zika virus. Uh, Guillain-Barre is sometimes temporary, but sometimes it's not. And if you're in an area which doesn't have the uh, ICU uh, capability, then you could easily die of it. Now, Zika became a locally transmitted disease in the U.S. when cases not related to travel were found in areas of Miami, where the case count is now at about 49. Travel-related cases are much higher, though. People traveling from other places where the mosquito lives, the Aedes mosquito lives, also lives in 30 U.S. states, by the way, there are at least so far 2,700 in the continental U.S. alone with 48 states involved. The U.S. territory of Puerto Rico has been affected. Even worse, 12,000 known cases on that little island. Remember, these are the cases with symptoms. So the total number of Zika infections, if you count the 80% that have no symptoms, is about five times higher. And so you don't hear much about these cases, but they exist. And a lot of them are in Florida, a lot of them in warm weather states, but a lot of them in New York City, a very temperate climate. So how about that? Now, unlike Ebola, which is spread from person to person, Zika is almost always spread by mosquitoes, although sexual contact and blood transfusions are rare but possible ways that humans can give the disease to others. Used to be thought that only males can give it to females. Now it's been proven that anybody can give it to anybody else. So be very, very careful and use protection. Absolutely. Zika 
has reached pandemic status. Now, what's the difference between an epidemic and a pandemic? Let's say Zika is an, a pandemic, Ebola was an epidemic. Now, an epidemic is a rapid and widespread occurrence of an infectious disease that's not normally seen in an area. Indeed, Ebola was first seen in West Africa in 2014 when it made the news and became widespread in that region. It was, but it did not, however, go much further than that except for isolated cases. Therefore, it was an epidemic. Now, a pandemic is a widespread occurrence of an infectious disease across different regions. So Zika, for example, started in Africa in the Zika forest of Uganda. Then it traveled to Asia, then to French Polynesia, then to Brazil and the Caribbean, and now back to Asia and Singapore and maybe Malaysia. That is a real pandemic. Many different regions with community-wide outbreaks, 200 cases here, thousands of cases in South America, thousands of cases in the Caribbean. It is something major. And some diseases, by the way, are endemic E-N-D-E-M-I-C, may not have heard of that word. That is a disease that's regularly found in a certain area. For example, there are many tropical countries in the world where malaria is always present. Therefore, malaria is said to be endemic to that country. Although you won't be likely to die a horrible death if you get Zika like you might with Ebola, Zika is worse than Ebola in another way. The lack of symptoms means that a pregnant woman won't know that she's had the virus until the fetus is found to be abnormal on tests like sonograms, some people call them ultrasounds, which are common tests that are done during a pregnancy. A pregnancy, however, could be pretty far along before you're sure that indeed there is poor growth of the fetal head uh, or an abnormality in the brain. And once the baby's born, you certainly can't undo the damage. If it's born with disabilities, it'll stay disabled, but probably have a pretty normal lifespan. Otherwise, as the heart and lungs, other organs are usually pretty normal. That means a lot of cost associated with giving it the special care that the baby needs, or the adult then needs over a long life. Probably millions, it's been estimated, for each affected child. Now, that's bad enough in the U.S., but in poor countries like Brazil, which has at least 1,800 uh, Zika microcephalic babies, well, at up to 10 million bucks each, that is a real strain on the economy. And what about those Zika-infected babies that are born with a perfectly normal appearance? It's not an 100% thing that if you get Zika virus during pregnancy, your baby's going to appear abnormal. Mostly these babies actually come out normal-looking. But does that mean that Zika somehow decided not to damage any brain cells at all? Why should we assume that a baby that looks normal will have a normal brain? That's not the case with other issues, right, like autism. I mean, we won't know about Zika's long-term effects on normal-appearing babies until we start seeing them missing milestones like walking, talking, or maybe getting there late or not getting there at all to these milestones. How about school performance? Well, obviously, we won't know that for quite a number of years. So Zika is something to be concerned about, not panicked but concerned. How likely is Zika to show up like locally in areas besides Miami? Well, how are we going to know really? In South Florida, they're testing pregnant women for Zika virus, but in other places, that's not really the case. Many people with mild symptoms don't even go to the doctor. Some have no symptoms at all. The dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine in Baylor, uh, at Baylor University, Dr. Peter Hotez, thinks that we've had other outbreaks in the U.S. already. We just haven't tested for it in places like Texas and Louisiana. But there are lots of places like 
let's say, the poorer sections of, of Houston or, and other larger cities in these warm weather states that have vacant lots, trash like old tires, things like that, that can have just enough standing water to produce a new generation of mosquitoes. It doesn't take much. I'm hearing people say a bottle cap is enough full of water. We need to test populations at risk if we are going to help municipalities with mosquito control intelligently, by the way, intelligently, because we want to avoid damage to important pollinators like honeybees, like we talked about earlier in the show. Maybe Zika isn't a big deal. It certainly doesn't seem like one to most people. Zika, however, can mean a great deal to the next generation if we don't give it the attention and maybe the funding, Republicans and Democrats, that it deserves. Absolutely. All right, folks. Thank you so much for listening. We really... We're done? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, no. We're out of time. Oh, we really, really appreciate all of our faithful and amazing listeners over the years. We do. Yes, those that have been listening for years, those that have been listening recently, thank you very, very much. We really, really appreciate it. And if you have any suggestions, please let us know. This has been the Survival Medicine Hour with Wait. Joe and Amy Alton. <laughs> we got to go, honey. When are, when are we? Are, when are, when's the next show? Uh, in a week. <laughs> oh, oh, a week that long? Yeah, I'm oh, sorry. No. We love you guys. Oh. <laughs> Be safe, everybody. Thanks for listening. <laughs>